Душа любезный совсем не под пару. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And you lovely patrons out there who are generous and give us support every month with contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25 and more. And I do want to say that, you know, becoming a patron is really important. It allows us to pay for a lot of stuff. It allows us for Rusana to get some money. Um, And it's also the best way to let us know how much you appreciate the show. You know, I appreciate all the people who reach out to me, which, you know, isn't that as often as I would think it would be, but really becoming a patron shows that you value what we do here and you're willing to invest in the show. So if you're one of those people who a regular listener, you really like what we do and you want to invest in it and show us how much you appreciate, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash or to our website, yuranot.org and find that patron button and sign up to become a monthly patron. So how are things going, Rusana? How's the new year greeting you? The new year has been kind. <laughs> ah, good. Lots of rain, but still I, I felt very appreciative of the California weather, you know, uh, having all these calls with friends and relatives in Russia and Europe. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God for magical California winters. Yeah, that is one of my three things I miss about Southern California, at least. The weather... The Lakers, which the way the Lakers are playing <laughs> less and less, but that's a different story. And uh, In-N-Out Burger, which is um, another <laughs> another prize uh, that I wish we had out here. Uh, we have there's some comparables, but it just isn't the same. So mm. yeah, but you know, yeah, the new year's been going okay, but we are getting things a bit slow starting out. Um, so I thought we'd run a rerun this week. And it's an interview I did way back in 2019 with Vladimir Alexandrov about his fascinating biography called The Black Russian, which is about a man named Frederick Bruce Thomas, who was a black American who immigrated to Russia in 1899 and ended up becoming a very successful nightclub owner. Wow. Uh, I'm curious. Um well, I'm curious about his story, but I guess you can't really tell us his story like in more detail because then what's the point of listening to the podcast? But what I'm going to ask is why did you choose to rerun this specific episode? I was originally going to rerun an episode, an interview I did on um, about Rasputin with a guy, a, a writer named Douglas Smith, who is a very nice interview. He's a good writer. He does some good historical work on Russia for a more popular audience. And his his biography of Rasputin is just unparalleled. But then I realized that I had once re-ran the Rasputin episode a couple, a bit ago. <laughs> so I was like, okay, what can I run that's kind of interesting that maybe has a, a, a bit more, you know, less kind of academic, you know, topic, something that would maybe listeners would like to listen to maybe for the first time. It would, it's attractive. Um, but if you've listened to it, maybe you'd like to re-listen to it. And and another reason why I chose this as opposed to the, you know, another of the 300 plus episodes that we've done here is it's just such a unique story, you know, to think about a black American who leaves the United States at really the lowest point of race relations post 
emancipation and the life he's able to build for himself first in Europe and then in I think an incredibly unlikely place, particularly for in our in our American consciousness, and that is Russia. Why would a black man go of all places to Russia and then ironically prosper quite well? Um, and so that and and the interview with Vladimir is just he's a great speaker. He uh, it's a really good listen. So this is the reason why I thought I we'd throw this one back up. I mean we. We probably know more about uh, black Americans who traveled to the Soviet Union. This is like a much more common story, right? And these these stories, uh, everyone heard of it in the 1920s and like 30s. And I mean, you were working on a you're working on a podcast about one such characters. But like, I honestly never heard of anyone doing that before the revolution and like building a life in imperial russia that's like something very intriguing to me yeah there and there's a there's a handful of black americans who did travel uh to the imperial russia the earliest one was a woman named nancy prince that we know of i mean maybe others a woman named nancy prince who went to russia and i believe i have her memoir i think in the 1830s um, she was a servant of an American diplomat. Uh, and then uh, a very famous um, stage actor by the name of Ira Eldritch, Aldrich, excuse me, Ira Aldrich, who was very popular in, on stage in Europe and had a career in Russia. And then there was a man named, I want to say his name is Jimmy Wilkins, or Jimmy Wilkes, perhaps. He was a, um, a horse racer who had a, quite a good career in Imperial Russia racing horses. Uh, so, and and a lot of these, at least for Ira Aldrich, uh, Jimmy Wilkes, and, you know, um, Frederick Bruce Thomas, they, it, going to Russia or even going to Europe, allowed them to leave the American Jim Crow regime and it gave them, and this is one of the things I'm really interested in in people like this, and also the man I'm I'm doing the the, the audio documentary about Love at Fort Whiteman, is how leaving the American racial matrix affects them in their psychology, in their life, but also in their understanding of themselves in the world as as a black American. And how it gives them outside of the racial regime of America gives them a different perspective. I also wonder how they were able to thrive and be prosper like in a new country, not knowing Russian, like whether they had to learn Russian or at the time, I'm thinking maybe they were able to like get by with like French and English as like people who belong to like certain, you know, classes that have, uh, uh, um, that are more like multilingual polyglots uh, intellectual circles, I, I, especially when it come when I'm thinking about like this actress, like Bohemians, etc. It's like a very yeah intriguing to me. It is a good question. I mean, you know, how did they just make their way in this in this you know very different place? <laughs> so, well, why don't you uh, do the introduction for for Vladimir? Vladimir Alexandrov is the B.E. Bensinger Professor Emeritus at the Slavic Languages and Literatures Department at Yale University. 
He is the author of several books. His most recent is To Break Russia's Change, Boris Savinkov and His Wars Against the Tsar and the Bolsheviks. He is the author of The Black Russian, published by Grove Press. Here is Vladimir Alexandrov. So I thought we'd start our, our conversation about your fascinating biography, The Black Russian, um, just by having you introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I retired a couple of years ago from Yale University, where for over 30 years, I taught uh, various aspects of Russian literature and culture. I taught at Harvard before that. And um, for most of that time, I did the kinds of things that most people in my position did, which is to write about various Russian authors, issues in literary theory, and so on. And then through a kind of fortuitous stroke of luck connected with teaching, I stumbled onto the topic that led to the book we're talking about. How did you find uh, the story of uh, of Frederick Bruce Thomas? Because you know he's, you know, as as we know, there were so few black people in Russia, in Imperial Russia, and very few African Americans. So, how, what was? How did you discover him? Indeed, uh, there were very few. Um, it was uh, luck. Um, I was preparing to teach a graduate seminar on Russian emigre culture between the two world wars. And I was, of course, going to focus on some of the major writers, painters, composers. But I also always liked Alexander Virtinsky very much, who, as you know, was a very popular singer in Russia toward the um, end of the imperial period during the First World War. And then in the emigration, and I was reading his memoirs, and in um, a passage pertaining to the evacuation of the Crimea uh, by Vrangil, he was part of that evacuation, he mentions that he landed in Constantinople, and because he had a skill that people are willing to pay for, pretty much landed on his feet and began to perform in various nightclubs, including, as he said, in his memoir, uh, in the outdoor entertainment garden called Stella that belonged to our famous Moscow Negro, as he put it, Fyodor Fyodorovich Thomas, who owned the famous Maxim in Moscow. And I, as I've mentioned on other occasions, you know, that so surprised me that I literally put the book down because I'd never heard of anything like uh, famous uh, black people in late Imperial Russia owning whatever Maxim's was. I didn't know at the time. That was the beginning of it. And I started digging. And fortunately for me, you know, Frederick Thomas left a paper trail in various places that I was able to follow and assemble the information that led to the book. Yeah, that's what's really amazing is not only you you define this figure, this one figure, and A, he's famous, so that allows for you know some paper trail. But you're, you were, I think, fortunate enough that there was enough of a paper trail to, uh, you know, to kind of assemble a, a biography, a, a pretty detailed biography of him. Um, I, the other thing I, I, you know, his his descendants live in France. So how did you how did you track them down? And, and, and did you I mean, you interviewed them. So and what did they think of you, you know, digging up their grandfather, their grandfather? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I was really zealous in trying to track down every last shred of information about Frederick Thomas when I came across him. 
And in a very complex, I asked everybody that I knew and even people I didn't know if they'd ever heard of him. That led to my being directed to a book by, <laughs> I'm not going to go into all the details, but just to give you a taste of what was involved. A book by a Bulgarian who moved to Paris in the 1970s, who was very much interested in Russian cabaret culture. A man by the name of Konstantin Kazansky, who also speaks Russian. And he mentioned in uh, his uh, acknowledgments at the end some details uh, about Frederick Bruce Thomas's children that allowed me to find a grandson in Paris. So I wrote to the man, and then I came to Paris, and he invited me to his apartment. Very affable fellow about my age. He was very surprised when I landed on his doorstep, but he was very welcoming. And uh, he immediately started to regale me with what he knew of his grandfather's life. And it turned out, after I started my research in earnest, that most of what he told me was sheer invention. <laughs> oh, again, there's more that I could say about this, but I'll give you uh, a couple of examples. You know, I was able to ascertain from documents that are uh, clearly reliable that Frederick Thomas's family um, was living in Mississippi, that his parents had been slaves during the Civil War. According to the grandson, his grandfather, my subject, was the son of the chief of a tribe in the southwest of the United States. Uh, that's not a, a random invention. Uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., you know, the famous scholar, uh, has done studies of this, and it's quite common um, that among some Black American families, there would be the idea that part of their ancestry uh, is in Native Americans, uh, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and then also, I know that Frederick Thomas worked as a waiter and a valet very successfully in Western Europe before he got to Russia, which was the beginning of his uh, climb to fame and fortune. According to the grandson, his grandfather had become a smuggler in the South China Sea and saved uh, a Russian nobleman's life. Uh, where do you think? In a bar in Shanghai, of course, as a result of which the rich Russian set him up in grand style in Moscow, things like that. So when I wrote the book, I gave a copy to the grandson, and he was uh, quite chagrined. Uh, he said that, you know, this story of my grandfather that I told you and that you've just dismantled uh, won the hand of both of my wives. What am I going to say to them? <laughs> yeah, it would have been really, really hard to burst his bubble. <laughs> such yeah. A, so such his, a... his response was to write a novel based on what he had been told uh, by his father, Frederick Bruce Thomas's son, with the help of a um, journalist friend of his, which came out some years ago. And it pretty much elaborates with other inventions on what he had told me. Wow, that's that's really fat. That's a story in and of itself. Yeah, right no, there. This, the search was part of the delight of working on this book. Yeah, definitely. So who was uh, Frederick Bruce Thomas and what was his, his family and upbringing? I think he was very much the son of his remarkable parents. As I said, they had been slaves until the end of the Civil War. But in uh, 1869, uh, they transformed themselves by uh, buying a large tract of land in Cahoma County, Mississippi, not far from where they had been enslaved, and becoming very successful uh, farmers. Uh, census data shows that they were able to return their small investment when they bought the land uh, 
many hundred times uh, over in a year's time based on the success of what the, of the crops that they raised and sold. Uh, they were also people who had a very strong social conscience. Um, the evidence for that is that they donated uh, an acre of their land uh, to found an African Methodist Episcopal uh, Church on their property, which, from what I've been able to ascertain, might have been only the second one in the entire county. Uh, as you know, uh, churches of this kind, even well into the 20th century, served all kinds of functions in black communities, including schools. And uh, Frederick, uh, my subject's uh, stepmother, whom he thought of as his mother because she raised him, was literate. Uh, there was evidence for that. So it's quite possible that she would have taught in that chapel school and that's where he got the rudiments of his education, which he eventually continued for a while at a school for a black youth in Memphis when the family moved there. Um, his parents kept expanding their land holdings. They even started up a business with an emigrant from England to um, exploit the timber that grew on their land. So these were people who were very ambitious uh, and very successful before the heavy hand of Southern racism uh, crushed them. It's clear very early on that uh, he comes from a, a family that is very ambitious, very entrepreneurial, though uh, there's this this horrible tr tragedy where his his father is murdered by one of the boarders of their of their home who's who's renting a room. Um, do you have any sense of, of now, if, if I remember correctly, um, Frederick Thomas wasn't living there with his parents at the time. Uh, you can correct me. No, he was. He was living um, with them. Do you have any sense of, of I mean, because it, it clearly like broke a lot of the stability of the family. Do you have any sense of how that affected him in terms of him leaving Memphis and then going to Chicago and, tra and eventually traveling? I think the tragedy that you mentioned was the catalyst. Um, <clears throat> it broke the family apart. So, uh, I mean, the problems began back in Cahoma County when a rich local planter tried to steal the Thomas uh, family farm and pretty much succeeded. Um, the family moved to Memphis to get out of harm's way. That's where Frederick began to work uh, as an errand boy for a fancy food shop. That's where he went to school for a while as well. But with the father's death, the family broke up and uh, Frederick's stepmother and his sister uh, moved to another city in the south uh, where the mother worked as a cook for a rich uh, jeweler. And that's when Frederick decided to uh, explore the north. Uh, as you mentioned, he went to Chicago first for a while, then to Brooklyn. So uh, the one explanation for this decision on his part that I've come across was that he said, that since he lived at a kind of a nexus of railroads in Memphis, he was curious to explore the world. And he began in the North, and eventually, as we know, he went to Europe. You know, one of the one of the fascinating things about his his life and going to Europe, like leaving the United States, and you see this amongst um, you know many African Americans throughout the twentieth nineteenth late late nineteenth and early and in, into the twentieth century, is that you know their blackness takes on different meanings almost by almost by you know once they leave the United States and then 
you know, whatever European country they 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 travel to, they have a different their blackness means other things. Um, what was it for him? You know, leaving the United States, how was his blackness different in, say, when he went to England and then to France and then before he went to Russia? I think it was transformative. Uh, moving from the south to the north was already an improvement for him. And incidentally, it's worth mentioning that he was long ahead of the curve for that kind of uh, movement because the Great Migration didn't really start in earnest until after this, the First World War. So Thomas moved to the north a good couple of decades before that. But of course, in a, in, in a country like England or France, where you spend a considerable amount of time, there was no prejudice against black people. There was plenty of other kinds of prejudice, as we know. Uh, the Brits uh, were anti-Semites. They treated South Asians very badly. We know about the Dreyfus Affair in France with uh, reflecting the country's anti-Semitism. But from everything that I've read, the only people who objected to the presence of people like Frederick Thomas, whether it was in England or France, were American tourists. So uh, I found letters uh, to the editors of various provincial American newspapers by people who had been to Paris or London and who uh, complained about the fact that they saw a white woman eating dinner with a black man in a restaurant and nobody else seemed to care. Or they were at a ball at one of the Oxbridge colleges and saw uh, blacks and whites dancing and nobody seemed to mind. So at that point, in the late 1890s, the very beginning of the 20th century as well, in most Western European countries, uh, blacks were, if anything, a kind of novelty that elicited curiosity. Uh, I found that uh, French women found black men particularly attractive. Um, no racism in that sense. So even in, in the sense of like France, uh, where they do have, and also Britain to, to, to some extent too, they do have colonies in Africa. Does, does his, does his African Americanness make the difference than say, if he was from Kenya or, you know, Western West Africa, one of the French colonies? I don't know. To, to be frank, um, I know that other African Americans went to England around the same time that Frederick uh, Bruce Thomas was there. One famous uh, person is Ida Wells, who uh, was from Memphis and who fought for civil rights very early on. Uh, she was feted by uh, various uh, British organizations for her uh, fight against discrimination in the United States. But I don't know. If, and I didn't see in any of the reading that I did uh, any distinction being made about uh, black people from Africa or from the United States. Um, I want you to comment on something that you write when he, when uh, Frederick Thomas decides to go to Russia. Um, and, and, and to go to Russia, unlike in, in going to Western Europe, he has to get a visa to enter Russia. Um, and there's all sorts of interesting tidbits that I learned about that process. But let me read what you wrote, and then you can comment on it. Um, you write, by applying for a Russian visa, Frederick was for the first time seeking to enter a country where his sense of belonging would be very different from what he had experienced in Europe thus far. 
in contrast to the other countries where he had been accepted more or less like anyone else, in Russia he would explicitly not be a member of a despised and oppressed minority. A black American would have felt this distinction with greater poignancy than most whites of any nationality. Now, this is uh, the reason why I focused in on this passage is because it it it's a it it has a lot in it. Uh, in terms of what it's commenting on. Because, for example, him, he would not be a, a member of a despised or oppressed minority. So he's neither, there is no legacy of colonization of African peoples in Russia. And of course, the there is no, you know, the African American, the racism African Americans feel in the United States is not present for Afri- for, for black-skinned people in, in, in Russia. Um, talk about the significance of, of this experience, you know, him going to Russia. Well, I think that's where he became himself. What I mean by that is that the years that he worked in Europe, happily, incidentally, he spent a season as the maître d'hôtel at a fancy uh, beach resort in the south of France, which meant that he was put in charge of native French and Italian waiters, suggesting that he was very good at what he was doing, in addition to speaking French fluently. It it was in Russia that he was able to leave that portable profession that he'd had as a waiter and a valet. He could do that pretty much anywhere successfully and started to climb the social hierarchy. I mean, he began as a waiter in Russia, but uh, just around the time of the February Revolution, He was actually inducted into the um, Merchants Guild in Moscow, suggesting that he wasn't just a financial success, but had acquired a kind of respectability and a standing in merchant society that would have been, I think, impossible for him anywhere, possibly even in Western Europe. I mean, I I don't know. A certain amount of speculation uh, is involved here. He could have gone to Western Europe back from Russia. I think he may have done so during the 1905 revolution when Moscow was a particularly bad place to be. But he decided to come back to Russia. Um, Another kind of oblique bit of evidence that bears on this is Jack Johnson, the famous black American heavyweight boxing champion. He was pretty much hounded out of the United States uh, for racist reasons. And in 1913, when he went to Europe, Frederick Thomas reached out to him and invited him to come to Moscow to stage exhibition fights. Uh, Boxing was hardly known in Imperial Russia. And my impression is that uh, Thomas was interested not only in uh, getting Russians interested in this very popular sport, popular in the rest of the world, But he was also possibly thinking that Jack Johnson might be able to begin in Russia what he had begun in Chicago but was stopped from continuing to do, namely opening cafes and entertainment venues. Uh, Which means that the sense of personal freedom and the absence of obstacles that Thomas encountered in Russia were probably greater than he found even in the quite colorblind setting of um, Western Europe. And moreover, I think that uh, one can find that Thomas made certain gestures 
toward uh, the Jewish population of the Russian Empire. Um, we all know that there was an enormous amount of anti-Semitism that was basically almost an ingrained part of the way in which the country was ruled. So it went very much against the grain for somebody as prominent as Thomas was in Moscow to arrange for the staging of an openly philo-Semitic play that had been written uh, by uh, American Jewish writers, uh, Potash and Perlmutter was the play. This is another whole long digression, but I mean, there was anti-Semitism in the United States as well. And these two writers wrote short stories and wrote a play that put um, uh, Jews in a positive light. And it was a great success in the United States. It became a great success in France as well. And Thomas decided to stage this play in one of his theaters at the Aquarium Garden in Moscow. Now, the notoriously uh, pro-monarchy, anti-Semitic Moscow newspaper, Moskovsky Vyadomosti, uh, when they found out about this plan, predicted that this would fail miserably. And it turned out to be one of the greatest successes uh, in Thomas's uh, play staging career. It went on for years. In fact, it survived the, 19, uh, the February Revolution uh, uh, for a number of years as well. So it suggests to me that Thomas was sensitive to the status of Jews in the Russian Empire, and he was interested in making a gesture within the purview of the kind of activity that was available to him toward this oppressed minority. Do you have a, a, a sense of what Russians understood and knew about African Americans because there is of course at least amongst the you know with it amongst the educated elite there's a dialogue in the middle of the century about serfdom and slavery um, there's certainly an awareness uh, uh, in Russian press of racial oppression in the United States um, you know I, I found cart you know newspaper cartoons that allude to this um, so what what's what how did what did Russians kind of generally understand about a figure like him? I think uh, apart from a kind of an intellectual elite, uh, probably nothing. Um, one thing that struck me is that I'm not sure that most Muscovites would have recognized him how, uh, in terms of how rare he actually was statistically, because Moscow was um, a very uh, sort of polyethnic city. Um, I found um, a comment about this in a very useful source, the 1914 Baydecker Guide to the Russian Empire, where uh, tourists are advised that if you want to get a sense of what real Russia is like, it's not going to be St. Petersburg, it's not going to be Odessa or Kiev as much as it is Moscow, where you have Russianness in its purest form. And then uh, the authors describe uh, the feel and the appearance of uh, city streets in Moscow. And they go on about how many different types of peoples from Central Asia, from Asia, from the Black Sea Basin there are, uh, which means that it is by far, uh, it is not at all the case that uh, you know, all eyes uh, were round or that all skin was white in Moscow. And another thing that's relevant here is 
Claude McKay, when he went a couple of years after the revolution, he then commented in his memoir of his stay in Moscow that he kept returning to the issue of being a black man. And the poets with whom he spent time would say, why do you keep harping on this? You're not nearly as dark as some of the other folks we've got around here. You know, not fully appreciating where he was coming from by coming from the United States uh, and suggesting that there might have been uh, more tolerance, more colorblindness in the Russian Empire with regard to people with different skin tones and appearance. Um, in the extensive literature on Russian popular entertainment and journals from the period that I went through, there were hardly any references to Thomas's being black, positive, negative, or neutral. There were a few. But those, as far as I could tell, were driven mostly by professional uh, jealousy and competition because he was successful and the people who complained about him using uh, the term that he was a, a, an African, which of course he wasn't, was just as an identifier, I think, rather than as a term of opprobrium. Yeah, this is something that I, in, in looking at the, the experiences of african-americans in the 1920s and 30s that i've looked at um this this experience of the black white dichotomy that they come from in the united states and having that broken apart in their experiences in russia really has a profound psychological effect on how they understand themselves how they understand race in the united states how they understand their place within a more global or international you know anti-colonialism or or anti or anti-racism um and and it's interesting that you know you said that he he found himself in in russia or he became himself and one of the things is that he he does go through and it, you even see this before he uh comes to europe he does have very you know, several moments of self-transformation, right? And in Russia, he um, he does this quite explicitly. He takes on the name Fyodor Fyodorovich. He takes on a Russian name. Not only does he, he, he marry, have children who are being raised in Russia, but then he becomes a subject of the Russian Empire. Um, what what? How do you understand these these moments of reinvention and his becoming Russian? I think there were probably a couple of reasons why Thomas uh, chose to become a citizen or a subject of the Russian Tsar. Um, one was probably pragmatic. He did this after the Great War began, and there was an outburst of xenophobia in Moscow and around the empire. Uh, and uh, there were demonstrations, there were kind of um, uh, mobs that ransacked uh, first German establishments, then German-sounding establishments, and then anything that looked foreign. Uh, you know, Kuznetsky Most in Moscow was sacked. There were grand pianos being thrown out of a famous German piano store onto the street by rioting mobs. So I think there would have been an, a, a reason for Thomas to show his loyalty to the country where he was succeeding by uh, becoming a, a citizen. Um, I suspect also that because of the success that he had had, because he had a family that was growing, because his ambitions went far beyond uh, being a successful entrepreneur in Moscow, he also tried to branch out to St. Petersburg. Uh, he started up um, a corporation 
that dealt with the kind of entertainment business that he was involved in, well, which showed that he had uh, ambitions to grow and had faith in the country where he was living, uh, that he uh, put down roots, planning to stay. And I mentioned before that he uh, was inducted into the uh, Merchants uh, Guild um, right around the February Revolution. He uh, had his daughter inducted into the guild with him, which implies that she was being groomed. This is Olga, his oldest child. She was being groomed, in a sense, to uh, continue in the same business. Um, his son, Mikhail, who was born in Moscow in 1905, uh, the father of the grandson that I met in Paris, always uh, oriented himself, when he was in Paris, uh, toward Russian emigre culture, to the extent of trying to make his son, the man whom I met and whom I interviewed, attend a Russian uh, language gymnasium that existed in Paris decades ago, and that the editor tried to raise him as a Russian in, in, in France. All of which, again, is not perhaps the most direct evidence, but kind of oblique evidence, pointing to the fact that a calling Frederick Bruce Thomas the Black Russian uh, makes sense, because that's where his uh, loyalties uh, were, were um, gravitating toward. I don't think that the document that he had to write to petition the imperial government to recognize him as a Russian citizen, where he talks about his uh, undying love for the Tsar, needs to be taken literally. I think that was a practical move. It was the rhetorical gesture necessary to achieve this end, and he did. You know, he, he's in Russia and, and becoming incredibly successful in Russia at a time where the social and political um, conditions of the country are in turmoil, right? He He's there during 1905. Of course, you know, things don't really calm down in terms of, you know, there's terrorism, there's violence in the streets uh, until, you know, the teens. And then war breaks out and he's in Russia during, you know, World War One until, and then, of course, the revolution. Do you have any ins a sense of, of how he saw the environment around him, uh, how he evaluated the turmoil that's happening, you know, around him? Uh, some, some evidence. Uh the 1905 revolution, there is some evidence that he actually left the country at the time. Uh, aquarium wasn't his property at the time. The aquarium was the site of various revolutionary events in that year, 1905. So uh, he seemed to try to get out of harm's way. On the other hand, uh, when the Great War broke out, he began to participate and got his very numerous employees to participate in all kinds of patriotic uh, patriotic initiatives, uh, processions through the city, collections of tobacco and chocolate for the troops, collections of money. Uh, it was mentioned in the press, uh, the fact that he and some of his co-workers were seen basically with a tin cup in hand walk, working the crowds to collect money. I find it hard to believe that all of that would have been just a pose. Um, there's a photograph that I found in uh, a journal during the first months of the Great War that shows children connected with the aquarium garden that Frederick Thomas owned uh, in a patriotic procession. And if I'm not mistaken, his daughter is one of them. 
so I think that uh, he cared about what was going on. He was also an optimist because uh, it was right before the February Revolution, perhaps a week before it actually started to play out, that he made one of his biggest investments in real estate in Moscow. He bought for a very large sum a block of uh, apartment buildings that still stand, although they've been rebuilt, that um, are uh, diagonally across the street from the Hermitage Garden, which still exists as well in Moscow. I think it's in Karyat Nirad or somewhere around there. Uh, was this purely you know, an attempt to buy something when the price might have been depressed because of the turmoil and a hope of capitalizing on its rise later? I don't think so. I think he really was trying to um, preserve and grow what he had achieved because of a sense of connection to the place. Now, he has a, a is a, in terms of, you know, after the 1905 revolution, uh, when censorship is abolished, um, you have, uh, you know, Russia really begins to be connected at least to a more popular Western European culture, right? A more globalizing culture, you know, nightclubs, there's touring, you know, acts that are touring when through Europe from the United States also go through Russia. And he is a major facilitator of the nightlife entertainment scene in Moscow. His club that he starts is on Bolshaya Dmitrivka, which is right in the center of the city, right in the cultural district of Moscow. Um, talk about this this entertainment scene and the role he plays in, in really building it up. Well, it was, as you said, a very much an international scene. And as you indicated, anybody who was going to hit the hottest spots in Europe would include London, Paris, Vienna, St. Petersburg, Moscow, Kiev, maybe Odessa, Warsaw as well. Uh, so there were uh, reminiscences by touring acts, some of them black that I found, uh, black American acts that would mention that after having been to Vienna, they came to Moscow and performed at his establishment. Thomas had a particular nose for what seemed to be new and big. Uh, he went on recruiting trips to Western Europe as entrepreneurs and his position typically did. And the reaction of what he put on his various stages, which varied from light operettas to farces to vaudeville, uh, was frequently admiration and envy. Uh, nobody seemed to hire acts as big and expensive as he did and bring them to his places because he was he had the aquarium garden, but also... Uh, his nightclub theater, Maxim, on uh, Bolshaya Dmitrovka. So uh, he liked to wow his audiences with whatever was technologically advanced for, let's say, vaudeville acts, or what was very much um, in vogue. So that famous operatic divas uh, who went from uh, La Scala to vaudeville stages because vaudeville would include acts like that as well as trained dogs, are all things that he brought to Moscow. But his biggest coup was, I think, what he was planning to do with Jack Johnson. Uh, I think, uh, given the amount of money that was going to be paid Johnson and the kind of film of the exhibition matches that, uh, were, that was planned, I think that uh, Thomas was trying to bring something completely new not just a better version of something that was known in Russia, but something completely new in Russia, and to jumpstart a major new form of, of entertainment. 
The the other fascinating thing about him within this context of the entertainment scene is that he also had developed really good connections, right? You point out at one point that the Orthodox Church, of course, is upset because the type this type of entertainment is is seen as you know licentious, etc. Um, but he he is able to squash all of these this potential you know problems for himself uh, because of he's developed these great connections with clientele and other, you know, figures in this, in the city. Uh, talk, talk, can you talk a bit about how that development and the importance of these connections? Well, there isn't a lot that I was able to find about this, but it's also not just an inference on my part because I was able to find references in the theatrical journals that I went through to the fact uh, mentioned by some theatrical journalists that there must have been some kind of high-level intervention on Thomas's behalf when he ran into trouble, for example, with keeping his places going during church holidays, because otherwise he would have been shut down. So contemporaries themselves uh, inferred that he had connections. And, uh, I mean, there was a certain amount of, of censorship, I think, in the press regarding talking openly about what grandees in Moscow were up to. But I did find references to the fact that, who was, he wasn't the governor general, but Adrianov was, um, I think he was a senior figure in the police. And actually, Grand Duke Sergei, uh, before he was assassinated in um, 1905, I guess it was, um, was known to be an habitué of Aquarium, although that was before Thomas's time. So these kinds of places did bring in uh, people with influence and money, and the miraculous disappearance of uh, problems that Thomas uh, went through several times implies that uh, he either paid somebody off or somebody um, took his side. Now, you you do have um, these instances where Americans, uh, white Americans, come to Russia and they're journalists. Um, how did do you have a, a sense of you know American white Americans who would come to Russia and you know find out about him um, and possibly even report on you know his entertainment business what their what their impressions were of what was going on? Yeah, it wasn't so much. I don't think these people were actually journalists as much as they were tourists uh, who decided to include. Russia and their grand European tour, which used to happen. I mean, Russia wasn't as central to this as France or England obviously were, but there were tourists who simply came. And uh, they frequently wouldn't know that the aquarium garden, for example, was owned and run by a black American. And they would be surprised when the head figure turned out to be a black man. Sometimes they did know. Uh, The ones who met him in Moscow were generally polite in their recollections when they wrote them up in this form that I mentioned before of letters to the local um, newspaper editor uh, because this was uh, an event. It was so unexpected that they wanted to communicate it to others from wherever they came from in the United States. Uh, And he uh, was very good, again, from what I've read about their recollections in dealing with them. If somebody were a touchy racist from the South, uh, he would adjust his behavior so as not to rub them the wrong way. 
uh, it didn't cost him anything. And he was a businessman and he wanted the business to continue. So that I even found references, although this wasn't in Moscow, but in Constantinople already, of some uh, pretentious woman from the South writing to her local newspaper editor that he treated me the way a Southern lady would like to be treated. And this is from a man who understood far better than she did, you know, what the dynamics were. Just what's the point, in other words, of, uh, of irritating her? He didn't conceal from tourists with whom he spoke that um, there was no color line in Russia. He used that expression himself. And then he would make small talk. He had worked in Chicago for a while, and he would ask them, oh, you're from Chicago, so how is, you know, the uh, whatever hotel doing now, or how is the restaurant where I used to work, that kind of thing. Revolution explodes in February 1917. Uh, you know, he is amassed uh, a fortune, I mean, it's extraordinary. I think uh, in the beginning of the book, you say in today's dollars, he had a wealth of about 20 million. Is that correct? Or 10. You know, it's 10. hard to convert the currencies, right. but, but still. But still, it's, that's an, it's an enormous amount. Um, so what happens to him in 1917? Well, uh, with February, he tries to uh, accommodate his operations to the new spirit of the times. So that the... Uh, somewhat more frivolous entertainments um, with, you know, sort of erotic dimensions to them, all extremely tame, of course, by our standards, um, are replaced by uh, more sort of culturally elevated kinds of performances and, and subject matter. Uh, and he's still hoping that this turmoil is going to move in a direction that won't be harmful. Um, and he continues until October. Uh, but after uh, October, everything uh, turns very bad for him. His properties are nationalized. Uh, he is allowed to run a canteen for theater workers out of one of the properties that he owned. Um, he gets his then new wife and the children uh, to the south, um, to the French-occupied, well, the German-occupied uh, Black Sea shore, uh, and starts looking for a way out of uh, Bolshevik-controlled Moscow himself. He manages to get out in the summer of 1918 with difficulty. Uh, he claimed once when talking to an American in Constantinople that he had found out that he was listed uh, uh, to be arrested. Uh, by the Bolsheviks, which would have been plausible simply because he was prominent and rich. And of course, the irony here is that they didn't care about the fact that he'd been an oppressed black man in the United States. They only cared about the fact that he was rich. So it was another form of, uh, of oppression that we're familiar with from the history. Uh, he managed to make it to Odessa, uh, where he had property. He had bought a villa in Odessa earlier. Um, I don't know much about the time that he was in Odessa. Uh, I wasn't able to discover any particular details, so I inferred what he must have been doing um, from evidence pertaining to others in his own position. Of course, when the French, after the armistice, uh, arrived and the Germans moved out, uh, the place was seized with euphoria because the thought was that this would be the uh, locus of a new crusade against the Bolsheviks. 
and Thomas, like countless other displaced Russians from the north, surely expected that the Bolsheviks would fail and that he would be able to go back to Moscow and reclaim his properties. I mean, this was a an idea in the minds of emigres for a good decade after the revolution, when they would be, as the, the saying goes, sitting on their suitcases waiting to pack up and go home. But as we know, it didn't happen. Uh, so he had to escape when the Bolsheviks were coming, and he managed to uh, get onto a boat and to Constantinople. Yeah, why did he go to land in, in Turkey as opposed to going, you know, because there is a there is an exodus out of the south uh, of of Russians that are going to France, they're going to, you know, other parts of Europe. Why does he go to Turkey? Well, uh, they all went via Turkey one way or another, because if you were in Odessa or the Crimea, uh, you couldn't get to uh, central Russia if you wanted to avoid the Bolsheviks. The only way out of the country was by sea. Constantinople uh, had been occupied by the victorious allies when the uh, Great War ended, and it was a transit point for a lot of people. And as you said, a lot of um, Russians tried to get to Western Europe, and a lot of them succeeded. But they had papers, and he didn't. Uh, He had given up his American citizenship when he became uh, subject of the Russian Empire. And he concealed this fact uh, from everybody. I don't think anybody actually knew that detail until I had dug it out of the various records that I was going through. There was no dual citizenship in those days. Um, When he was in Odessa and needed to get out of the city because the Bolsheviks were coming, he couldn't do it simply on the strength of having a Russian uh, passport. He presented himself to the American consul in the city as an American and said that his papers had been stolen from him when he was escaping from Moscow. Um, Of course, the consul accepted that he was an American because he was black and had a southern black American accent. So Thomas had reinvented himself, as it were, as an American to get out of Odessa. And when he landed in Constantinople, it was as an American on a ship that had been given over to the consuls of Western powers to get their people out. But he didn't have any documents to prove his status. And when he applied to the American Consulate General in Constantinople to be recognized as an American, racism reared its head. And the diplomats in Constantinople, to say nothing of their counterparts at the State Department in Washington, refused uh, to acknowledge that he was an American, even though they said they couldn't find any documents to prove it. Even though when I started going through the various State Department papers relevant to this, I found dozens of them from when he was renewing his American passport in Western Europe in uh, the first decade of the 20th century or when he was in Russia up through 1914. And uh, there were several attempts that he made to be given papers as an American, which would have allowed him to leave Constantinople, uh, but they refused him. And then his businesses started to succeed. And he reestablished this in himself as a very uh, successful nightclub entrepreneur. His places were the toast of Constantinople, both for Western tourists when they came back after the war, as well as, as well as Turks. So I'm not sure, you know, where would he go? He could have gone 
to Paris, which was becoming a mecca for Black Americans by then, the very late teens, the early 1920s. He said that he wanted to go back to the United States, but I can't believe that he really would have had he gotten a passport because by then his second, uh, he was married to his second wife. Uh, that would have been, that marriage would have been considered illegal in the United States. He said he wanted to send his children to school in the United States. You know, what kind of schooling could they have gotten in comparison to what they were getting in either Moscow at the private schools he used or in Constantinople where he sent his kids to school as well. So in in a way, I mean, you know, this this uh, back to this question of the trans the different meanings of his blackness at the end in his you know, in landing in Constantinople fleeing fleeing the revolution in Russia, his his blackness continued to be, you know, when it's when it's translated into an Amer- a potential American scenario it, it continues to be that prison, despite the journey that he's taken. Yeah, and as far as the Turks are concerned, his blackness didn't matter because the Ottoman Empire was a polyethnic um, society. Uh, the, the Turks did not parse the world by skin color. They parsed it by religious affiliation. You, if you were a Muslim, that was one thing. If you were a Christian, you know, the Turks were quite tolerant of various religious minorities in their empire. I mean, with some egregious exceptions, obviously, but still. Um, So they wouldn't have cared that this was a black man who was married to a white woman. Um, I remember finding out that uh, they didn't even have a specific term in Turkish of the time that was equivalent to what, uh, quote-unquote, Negro was and still is in English. Uh, the term, and this is something that as late as the eight, 1960s when um, James Baldwin was in Istanbul, he found the same thing. I think the term for a dark-skinned person was Arab. So the only racism he encountered was from um, most Americans. There were some exceptions. There were some enlightened senior figures who tried to help him. But he ran into absolutely appalling attitudes from uh, the run-of-the-mill consulate general staff who wouldn't accept the fact that he was really married to this woman and so on. So what happened to him? He has a tragic ending. Yeah, um, he was very successful for a while. And then uh, history changes under him, around him, once again, as it had before. There's another revolution, in a sense, because Mustafa uh, Kemal, subsequently Atatürk, uh, stages uh, a kind of a revolution against the plans of the Allies to uh, dismember the Ottoman Empire and to make uh, Constantinople and the entire sort of Straits area into an international zone like Shanghai. And he starts a campaign that threatens to uh, throw the Allied forces out. After he defeats the Greeks who had made a, an attempt to invade Turkey, he turns his wrath against the Allies. He demands they leave, and rather than fight a war against the Turkish nationalist movement, they do. In 1923, the Turkish Republic is announced. Uh, In contrast to the Ottoman Empire, it is not going to bend over backward for Western powers. So it starts limiting what foreigners can do in the country, very different from how the Ottomans behaved, uh, who had established extraterritorial policies. And uh, Thomas began to run into competition from others who started opening up uh, venues that were like his. Uh, He tried to compete himself. 
overextended himself, um, ran up debts that he couldn't handle. His creditors came after him. He tried to escape from Constantinople to Ankara, the new capital, made an attempt to start a business there. That failed and he was uh, imprisoned in a debtor's prison, Um, eventually in Istanbul, very primitive conditions. He'd had pneumonia a couple of times in his life before, and he seemed to have contracted it again and died as a charity case in the care of Catholic nuns in um, Istanbul. And is buried, uh, was buried, is buried in um, a French Catholic cemetery in Istanbul. But although the fact of his burial is recorded, as is the fact of a funeral service, there is no record of a grave because there wasn't any money to uh, pay for one. So where exactly in this not very large area he may be buried isn't clear. Uh, but that's how it ended. you know. And then his children had all kinds of problems after that. That's another story. And after that, he was forgotten. Because while he was famous through 1928 in Istanbul, Americans would write about him. But, you know, it wasn't the American policy to celebrate black achievement abroad. And when he was gone, uh, he was forgotten almost completely uh, until I stumbled across him. And it was, you know, uh, a gift to me from whatever powers there are that I was able to pursue this topic. And finally, you know, this, this amazing life of an amazing figure like Frederick Bruce Thomas. Um, you know, it is it is just one person, but he's also a person that really, his journey, at least in my reading, uh, really captures an interesting aspect of the time. It says something. So what, what, why is Frederick Thomas's story important? you know, for, for African-American history or Russian history, or even our understanding of, of that period of history in, in, in the region? I think it, for one thing, reconfirms in a very poignant way what we know about what Black Americans had to do to become themselves fully. They had to leave the country. Uh, they had to escape the various forms of racist oppression in that very extreme form. Uh, His life shows what a man can do if he sets his mind to it. Uh, There was no precedent, there was no example that he could have followed from anyone close to him to become what he became. So it's uh, an inspiring story of self-transformation. For me, it's also um, an interesting light on late imperial Russian society, uh, that in, uh, in, in kind of a way like an archipelago, there were these scattered islands of, of tolerance that existed, that it wasn't, wasn't all homogeneous. Even the fact that that uh, Jewish-American play that Thomas staged could be such a success that it would upset the monarchical right-wing uh, anti-Semitic newspaper in the city. Uh, was also a surprise to me. Uh, so I think it's um, it doesn't necessarily provide us with a brand new perspective on these issues, except maybe for the timing, because who knew that any black person would have left the United States in the late 19th century, you know, decades before 
Paris became a mecca for black American expatriates of various kinds. The, the urge to seek freedom was always there. And some rare people managed to, um, to pursue this far earlier than anyone thought. And, you know, if one wants to try to squeeze something optimistic out of this about late imperial Russia, maybe there were some, some strands that could have developed. Maybe it didn't all have to end the way it did. You know, maybe with some uh, more enlightened individuals at crucial times in Russian history, these more tolerant streaks could have been cultivated and things would have played out very differently. That was Vladimir Alexandrov. Vladimir Alexandrov is the B.E. Bensinger Professor Emeritus at the Slavic Languages and Literatures Department at Yale University. He is the author of several books. His most recent is To Break Russia's Chains, Boris Savinkov and His Wars Against the Tsar and the Bolsheviks. He is the author of The Black Russian, published by Grove Press. And I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Um, if you like this podcast, please help us spread the word, tell your friends and family about it, share it on social media. But as I said at the beginning, the best way to support the show is to become a patron, give some money to us. It, it lets us know that we're doing something right. Uh, and that people actually value the show and are willing to invest in the show. So become a patron by going to patreon.com slash you're a not. And until next time, bye. Bye. bye.